Merritt Street, we're building a new morning show where our guiding principle is to always value your time. We'd love for you to join us. Be part of our community. Each morning will be packed full of news, information, advice, and a lot of fun. And we promise we'll never waste your time. I'm Dominique Soxa. I'm Fanchon Stinger. Join us for Morning on Merritt Street. 8 a.m. Eastern, 7 Central. Essential Television. Welcome back, Secret Squad. Have you been on the edge of your seats since Wednesday? If you're just tuning in for the first time, make sure to go back and listen to my last episode, The Secret to Fighting for the Truth, Part 1. Jeff Deskovic tells his riveting story about being wrongfully convicted for rape and murder. Today's episode is, of course, part two of the conversation, and we're going to learn what happens after Jeff is sentenced. Let's dive right into it. Let me ask you this. Did you ever have the opportunity then to say anywhere to anyone, I didn't do it? No, no. And one of the reasons why I, I, I did not is because it, it felt to me like my life was over. And so I tried to literally make my life be over. I made a suicide attempt, which resulted in my being hospitalized involuntarily for six months in a, in a mental institution. And the only way the judge agreed to let me come out was they mandated that I go live with an, an uncle in, an, in a neighboring county. You know, until the case went to trial. Oh, how did you try to kill yourself? I took an unopened bottle of um, extra strength Tylenol. I took all the pills and I went to sleep. Oh, I intend to not get up anymore. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. So, okay, so then what were the first few months of prison like for you? You had to be just scared to death. I absolutely was scared to death, yes. You know, I mean, I wasn't used to being in a prison environment, uh, the idea that the guards were in charge. I mean, when I was in the county jail, I was housed in the mental health wing of the jail because I, I had uh, depression and suicidal thoughts. Um, so now I'm in a prison. I'm not in that environment anymore. So, I mean, as you might imagine, in the mental health wing of the jail, the civilians are there. They're, they're, in, they're in charge. But in a prison, they're, they're nowhere. It's just the guards. So the idea of the guards being in charge was really... Uh, really frightening. I mean, there was a lot of um, violence in the prison. There was st- guys were stabbing and cutting each other left and right. And there was a lot of, you know, other violence and gang activity. And half the time I couldn't believe that I was, you know, e- even there. I mean, it seemed the odds of any one of those factors happening that culminated into my being wrongfully convicted, they all seemed to be long, much less that they would happen cumulatively. So at times I was questioning you know, is, am I really here? Is this all, you know, really happening? Uh, I had to fight off feelings of um, uh, hopelessness, helplessness, thoughts of giving up, uh, at, at, at times uh, thinking about suicide. So I had to fight all those things off while also always having in the back of my mind as a concern that the other prisoners would discover that I was what I was incarcerated for. You know, uh, this is a vigilante mentality was people have been convicted of sex offenses. You know, I, I had some difficulties in the county jail based on that. So I knew all about that dynamic. So, you know, I was always worried about that in the prison. And 
know, throughout the years, at times I got, not, not all the time, but sometimes I, I, I got beat up. You know, <gasps> one time I got killed. How long were you in prison before you, the first time you were hit? Oh, mm-hmm. were you really injured really badly? No, not that time. I mean, I was hurt, but I wasn't like, I mean, the, the worst of it was, you know, I, um, maybe like six or seven years in and, you know, I, I, I got hit multiple times on the side of my head with a 10 pound weight plate. No, I was taken to the outside hospital and the guards were given instructions that I was supposed to be put back into the print, the hospital that's located on the prison grounds, not, not thrown in a hole, you know, not thrown in isolation, but they, you know, just for observation, but they put me in isolation over the weekend anyway. Oh, oh my heavens. While you were there, what did you do to occupy yourself? And yeah. when, at what point when you were there, did you decide, I'm going to do what I have to do to get myself out of here to, to, to prove I'm innocent? Yeah. So, uh, look, I, I, decided, I decided very early that I was, I was not going to waste my time in prison. So every program that I could take, even any activity I could do, would have some kind of potential usage, you know, when I got back, you know, to, to, when I got back home. So I did GED. I learned to type. I took general business. I, I, I became a teacher's aide. I got an associate's degree. I completed a year towards the bachelor's and the funding was cut. Uh, I, I continued to take other trades. Um, I, uh, I decided very early on, shortly after I arrived at, at the prison, there was this, um, there was this old timer there and he kind of, uh, you know, he just gave me a tip. Look, it's very important for you to go to the law library and learn the law and help your case. I mean, I, I don't, you know, and, and he was like, look, I don't rely on my lawyer to defend me. Okay. I wouldn't be here right now if my lawyer did the right job. So, you know, while he's still helping me, I still go to the law library and I send cases and give ideas and ask questions. And I think it's important for you to do the same thing. <gasps> really? Oh, so I did that. Yeah, so I used to go to the law library and learn the law, and I used to collect articles about uh, other people being exonerated. And I would, you know, be looking like who helped them, what route did they, what route did they take? Um, so I used to, from 1997 to 2006, I, I, I used to read, um, I used to read books. So from 98 to 2006, I read like nonfiction books. I used to read like three or four books uh, a, a week. I used to write letters looking looking for uh, looking for assistance. Uh, I used to um, I had certain routines like I watched NFL on Sundays, and you know I would listen on other days like on the Saturday I would listen to sports talk radio. But I wasn't really listening to radio, sports talk radio. It was more like a lifeline to 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 the out to the outside. And you know when I would uh, I, I engaged in this elaborate delusion at times uh, when I was playing basketball or playing chess or ping pong, I was, you know, I would pretend that I was a professional athlete and, you know, and, and yeah. And so I had this whole thing, but it wasn't really like kids fooling around on the playground. This was more like I needed to get out of the prison for a couple uh-huh. of hours. Uh-huh. Mentally, and uh-huh. That's what it was. Uh, can I ask you, did you ever watch Dr. Phil? <laughs> I did. You did? Yes. I asked and I did. Yes. Oh, I'm glad I asked you. Okay, so let's turn the story to the point where you can tell everyone about when you were exonerated. Yeah, sure. So in, in now, it's important all this time that the stuff I've mentioned to you, like in my mind, I, I, I wasn't focusing or thinking like I'm doing this 15 to life sentence. I thought I was doing a year or two 
until the next appeal would happen, which I was sure I was going to win because I was innocent and I thought the courts were, you know, would straighten all this out. Um, so I lost like seven appeals. That, 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 that took me like 11 years to do that. Uh, when your appeals are over, the only way back into court is if you can find some previously unknown evidence of innocence. So when that happened, I stopped going to the law library and I just focused exclusively on just writing letters because I was trying to find a lawyer and an investigator that would help me for free in hopes that they could find some new evidence and then, you know, introduce that to, to the court. So I wrote letters for four years, rarely getting an answer other than the occasional no. Uh, and then I even went to the parole board where, because I maintained my innocence instead of, uh, instead of um, expressing remorse and taking responsibility, uh, they, they denied me. So I, 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 that, that's how I wound up doing 16 years on a 15 to life sentence. So um, in terms of how I, got, how I got exonerated, so one of the letters that I wrote in care of the publishing company to a book author, somebody at the publishing company sent the letter to an investigator and the investigator contacted me back. And when I sent her some legal paperwork proving that the DNA didn't match me, she instantly believed in my innocence. And so she helped me network to the, she tried to help get people to take my case. So she can ultimately, she connected me to the innocence project. So she, she suggested that I write them. She lobbied them outside the organization she got other respected legal entities to also lobby them. And then I also got lucky that one of the intake workers there uh, who worked there, Maggie Taylor was her name. Um, she represent, she, she presented my case multiple times before they, three times, she presented it a total of three times, um, finally getting them to say yes after they had said no twice. So that's how I got the legal representation. So that was the most significant factor. Second most important factor is that uh, the um, is that Janine Pirro, who was the Westchester DA, um, she had taken office before the first appeal, appeal was decided, so she kept the ball rolling against me, blocking further attempts at getting further testing. Uh, she left office, so the new DA was willing to allow me to get further testing. And the third thing was that we got lucky that when we put the DNA evidence into the DNA data bank, it matched the actual perpetrator. So he killed the second victim who was a school teacher and, and had two children and that and he got caught for that. And that's how his DNA came to be in the data bank so that when I finally did get the testing, it matched him. <gasps> and he was guilty of killing this woman. You were sent to prison for killing and raping. And so his yeah. DNA was in the database and wasn't yeah, his teacher yeah. and wasn't, wasn't his victim, the teacher, was he a teacher at the same school or a school in the district? His victim was a school teacher, but, but not, not in Peekskill. She lived in Peekskill. Oh, I he, see. Specifically the relationship between the two of them was that he was dating her sister <gasps> and he tried to steal her VCR to support his drug habit. And that was at a time when VCRs were very expensive and it was a luxury to have one in the home. And she walked in on him trying to steal the VCR and she wouldn't agree to give him the VCR. So his answer was to strangle her and take the VCR after he killed her. So he was already in prison. Yes, he and was. And when his DNA matched, he then confessed to your crime. Yes. You... <gasps> yes. 
So he then confessed to a crime for which I was wrongfully imprisoned for. Yes, he you knew correct. you were serving time. All of that time, he knew, and yes. could have could have confessed because he was already in prison. Of course, he's a convict. He's a criminal. He didn't do it, but he could have. But then yes. went ahead and confessed and said, "Okay, I did that crime, and you were exonerated." Yeah, I was released on September twentieth, two thousand six. And then I went back to court November 2nd, 2006, and all the charges at that point were dismissed on actual innocence grounds. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. How did you feel when you heard the news? Well, my I heard the news when my, my lawyer came to see me uh, unexpectedly. And when she said, um, well, she said to me that, um, you know, that the uh, first she told me that the items had been tested. And I and I, my reply was, well, what, what do you mean they've been tested? They're not supposed to be tested for another month. Right. Because I'm on the lookout for anything irregular because I've lost seven appeals here. So my you know, I'm afraid to hope anymore. So I'm on the lookout for anything out of the ordinary. Uh, so that alarmed me right there. And then she said, no, no, no. The D.A. got got the items tested ahead of time. Um, it matched the actual perpetrator. You're going home tomorrow. <gasps> And I said, no, I'm not. Well, why did and you say that? Back and forth three times. No, because I couldn't believe it. Yeah. And then she said, I had this three and a half hours of mental paralysis. She sat there, she held my hand and, uh, you know, my head was spinning and I was talking nonsense. Like all these random thoughts that were enter my mind, I was articulating them. And then the next thought would come and I'd say the next thing. And one thing had nothing to do with the next. And uh, every now and then she would cut in and say, uh, are you ready to talk about tomorrow? And I, and, I, and, I, and I said, no, 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 just look, look, get that away from me. I'm not talking about tomorrow. I'm not going home. Okay. That's not, no, you know, and, and what made it real at the end, and, and this went on for like three and a half hours, that she said, well, look, just the visit's almost over. There's only a half hour left. Uh, you know, you, uh, I have to get your shoe size. I have to get your size for your suit and people, you know, there's a ton of work to be done between now and tomorrow in terms of media. And that's what made it real. And, and then of course, about five minutes after that, a different fear came into my head, which was that I was afraid that something was going to happen uh-huh. between that day yeah. and the next. Will I make it and through the, the night? Gonna change, yeah. The DA is going to change her mind. And, uh, you know, they were going to, I wasn't going to, you know, go yeah. anywhere. Did you close your eyes? Did you stay awake and just make sure that nothing happened? No one came near you. You didn't, you didn't take a sip of water so you wouldn't choke. I mean, I would just sit there with my eyes open and not let anything happen. But yeah, I, I know what you mean. I mean, I did, <laughs> I couldn't sleep. I stayed up. I mean, I did go to recreation that night and it uh, kind of, since we're talking about the human interest aspects of this, I mean, uh, I, I'm on the, imagine this, right? You're me. So you're on the phone. Uh, I, I called the Innocence Project. They told me that they left they left an intern there at their office specifically to speak with me to try to, you know, let me know that everything was on track and to just oh. have someone to talk to. So I'm, I'm on the phone, you know, talking to this woman that I've never spoken to before. And I'm talking to her about going home and, you know, uh, um, you know the case being finished. And meanwhile, I'm looking at the prison wall I'm still seeing the barbed wire. I see the guards and everyone in the prison uniforms. It was kind of like a surreal, bizarre kind of uh, kind of thing. Yes, yes. Okay, so Jeff, right now, I don't want to, but can we just take one little pause to do something that I do with every podcast? I do two things with every podcast. One is a drink of the day. 
And I picked for today, for our drink of the day, honey chamomile tea latte. For some reason, I felt like it was just perfect for your story. And it it has eight ounces of water, two chamomile tea bags, a fourth of a cup of milk, two teaspoons of honey, ground cinnamon for garnish. And you just boil the water, pour over two tea bags, let it steep for about five minutes. While the tea is steeping, warm the milk and stir in honey. Once the tea is ready, pour in the milk and the honey, sprinkle with ground cinnamon over the top and enjoy. And I want all of the listeners to know that they can go to I've Got a Secret with RobinMcGraw.com and they can see the recipe and they can see it all prepared. And so cheers. This is our drink of the day for you and your story. Thank you. So now to continue, I also want to ask you, the other prisoners, after you visited with her on the phone and you knew that tomorrow you're going home, did any of the other prisoners in your area, did they know your news? They did because I went up to them and I told them, I said, look, I'm, you know, I'm going home tomorrow. (gasps) And were they happy for you? Yeah, they, well, it was a mixed reaction. Some of them were happy and, but, but, so about half of them were happy. The others just kind of like looked at me in like disbelief. And I think that they thought that I had lost my mind and that, you know, they'll see me in the yard the next night and, you know, this will just continue. So did anyone there ever believe you when you said you were innocent? Yeah, there were a couple of people. Uh, So one of them was another wrongfully imprisoned person named Frank Sterling, who was also innocent. And we used to meet up in the yard every six weeks. And half the conversation would be trying to encourage each other on the morale level. And the other half the time would be a brainstorm session would be you know, what's the next move to make? Did you see that, you know, what's the next person to write to? What's the latest case that's come in? Oh. Uh, so he believed, I mean, he was exonerated, by the way, uh, uh, two years after me. Oh. So he actually was innocent. Oh, that's yes. wonderful. Uh, that's wonderful news. Well, how long did he serve? 18 years. <gasps> 18 years. I'm so happy for him. Do you still keep in touch? Uh, I, I did, but it, well, he passed away after seven years. I'm so sorry. So I did, I did for a while. So he believed in me, uh, my, my, the counselor, one of my correction counselors, um, believed in me. So uh, since we're doing, you know, this interview seems to focus a little bit on the human interest aspects Mm -hmm. of it. So let me quickly share a a, a vignette. I'll I'll be quick. No, go. Uh, Take your time. She believed in me. I would see her like four times a year and I'm supposed to just, you're supposed to just tell me what programs to take and ask me, do I need some new phone number put on the list and then just, just do a quarterly review. And so about two of those a year, she'd keep me in her office for about 40 minutes and just try to keep me going morale wise. And she would ask what, what my latest attempt was and how are things going, that kind of thing. And, uh, and, and in one of those conversations, she mentioned to me that uh, she said that, you know, I, I always, um, I always had this fantasy to have, you know, on my caseload, somebody who was innocent and that I kind of helped on the morale, you know, uh, uh, level here. So you're like kind of satisfying that need for me. And she would be enthusiastic about, you know, what's the latest thing I've tried. And so uh, towards the end, when I told her that I, the Innocence Project agreed to take my case, she was really happy for me. And, but then like the reality came, right? And, and she, so in her mind, she's, then it's like the absurdity of all of this. And, you know, am I really innocent? And, and so she says to me, you know, when they get that DNA, 
tested. You know, let me just tell you something right now, Deskovic. Okay, you better be innocent. <laughs> oh, yeah, no. yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, I'm ca- you're police. on my bucket list, and buddy, you better be innocent. Yeah, 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 yeah. So uh, those, those are these are two of a few people, you know, not not many. I, I, in general, innocence is not really spoken about in prison, but there were two people there uh, amongst the few that uh, did believe in my innocence. Yes. Oh, are the two of you married now? No, just kidding. <laughs> no, we were we're not married. Um, she came to one of my speaking engagements like within ninety days. That was nearby oh. there, you know. And 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 uh, yeah, then life happened. She went her way. Oh. I went mine. But um, you know, in the last what turned out to be the last four months of her life, we 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 reconnected. Oh. You know, so I, somebody one of her friends messaged me through um, Facebook actually and said, "Look, she's just been admitted to the hospital. She's got cancer. They're saying she's not going to come out." She always talks about you. She always keeps up with what you're doing. She's so proud of you and your advocacy work and what you, what you do. If you're going to go see her, you like, you better get up there like now. And, you know, so I did. And so we reconnected and I used to go up and I went to see her like four or five times and, and, you know, over what turned out to be, you know, the last four months of her life. Oh, bless your heart. God bless you. And God bless her. I'm so happy to hear that. So what was the very first thing you did after you were released? There was a press conference and I spoke there and uh, my first words actually were, is this really happening? Yeah. So I could, I, yeah. So there was that, then there was a luncheon that, that we had. And, um, and then went back to my aunt's house, um, you know, lived in another County. Oh, and I'd love to tell you that we had this raucous party that lasted to the, I'd love to say that, okay, but the reality is that by then I had lost track of everybody. You know, I was just uh-huh. sitting. You know, I was just sitting around. A, I remember sitting around a coffee table and feeling out of place and being unable to relate or really talk much to anybody. Uh, a couple more people in the family came over and they were just talking. But you know, I did something I always wanted to do for a long time, which was simply you know, go outside, sit outside in the dark, because when you go to the yard in, in the prison when it gets dark, they, they close it. So uh, I sat outside in the dark for a little while, which I wanted to do. And, and then, uh, then I took a bath for the first time in 16 years. Yes. Yes. Oh, wow. That's so understandable, you know, and you make me want to change the name of this podcast to the secret to, is this really happening? (laughs) Right. Because I totally understand that too. What was your first meal when you got out? That's a great question, actually. I've gotten that question a few times. So my first meal was um, uh, mussels with um, fried diavolo sauce. Really? They gave, yeah, they gave me a special side dish of, of big ziti. They're usually it's just some, you know, regular pasta spaghetti, but they made an exception for me. They gave me some big ziti. Uh, I wanted to have uh, Neapolitan ice cream, but they had either strawberry or you could get like one scoop of vanilla and chocolate. So I oh. said, well, can you just can you just give me one of each and just put it all into one bowl? Yeah. And uh, so I eat it. And, you know, there's still like a fair amount of media there and friends and family and people from the Innocence Project and their students. So while I'm eating the ice cream. So, you know, one of the reporters like took a picture of me as the spoon's going in. So for that brief moment, I kind of sort of felt like maybe the, you know, how it would feel if I was uh, famous in the paparazzi. Uh, yeah. 
surprising me. So yeah, I love it. I <laughs> they, love... They, printed, they printed that. They printed that photo, by the way. Oh, I they, love they, that, and I'm sure you have that framed. I absolutely have that frame. Yes, that's in my <laughs> office. You are correct. I love that. So to say that all of this was traumatic for you is a complete understatement. How did right. you care for yourself in the beginning, and is it still an ongoing process? Well, um, it was very difficult re- reintegrating back into society uh, when when um, it's typical when people have been wrongfully imprisoned that they have psychological after effects. So PTSD, panic attacks, anxiety, uh, feeling of being frozen in time, uh, fear on seeing law enforcement, um, feeling of um, processing things at a slower speed. So for about about six years, I used to go to see uh, mental health professionals like four times a week. Oh, wonderful. Uh, I did that. There was, um, you know, uh, there was uh, stigma. Not not very many people questioned my innocence because the actual perpetrator was caught and arrested. And there was actually uh, a four expert panel that was convened to study and and issue the report, like what all the different ways the system broke down. So not many people questioned my innocence, but there was the stigma. Uh Uh-huh. Were 16 in prison for 16 years wrongfully, yes, but you were there for 16 years. So how much of that rubbed off on you? Is it safe to be alone someplace with you? Mm-hmm. Um, the world. So that definitely has been an obstacle in terms of personal relationships. Uh, the world was different. Technology had moved on. Internet, cell phone, GPS hadn't been thought of or invented then. Culture was different. Uh, cities and towns looked much different as well. So cumulatively, it felt like I was in I was in like some kind of parallel world where I didn't where I where I, where I didn't belong. Um, I was released without anything, so I was always passed over for gainful employment. Uh, so I lacked stability of housing. I bounced around from place to place. At one at one point, I was a couple of weeks away from going to the homeless shelter. But then Mercy College, which had given me a scholarship to finish the bachelor's degree, which I was ten classes short of, they uh, allowed me to. Uh, live on campus. Uh, You know, it was particularly hard for me because uh, I had never lived alone before. I I, I had to do that. I had to get a driver's license. I never had went shopping. I never had to write a check or balance balance a budget. So all those things uh, made it uh, particularly difficult uh, for me, you know, and there was a lonely existence as well. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street, essential television. Wow, so can you tell the listeners, you know, I. I want to flash forward. I have so many more questions, but I, and I don't want to take advantage of your time, but you've accomplished so much. Can you tell the listeners, bring us up to date with your incredible life right now, everything that, that you've accomplished? Sure. So I finished the bachelor's degree. Uh, I have a master's degree from John Jay College of Criminal Justice. My master's thesis is written on wrongful conviction causes and reform. Uh, I have a law degree. Uh, I'm an attorney. Uh, I have a large body of work. I've spoken across the country and some internationally. I was a columnist for five years for a uh, weekly newspaper. So I have more than 200 articles in print. Uh, I've been published in 10 different uh, 
uh, publications. Um, I used some of the money that I, it took five years to get a set, uh, get um, some compensation. So I took some of the money and I started the Jeffrey Deskovic Foundation for Justice. And we've been able to free 10 wrongfully convicted oh, people. Rob, oh, congratulations. We, thank you. We, we have done that. We um, passed three laws in New York um, aimed at preventing wrongful convictions. So videotaping, interrogations, identification reform, DNA database expansion. Uh, I'm an advisory board member of a coalition group called It Could Happen to You, which my foundation is part of. We're a statewide coalition, and we were able to pass three additional laws. So oversight for prosecutors and sharing of information, like automatically early in the process between the prosecution and defense. Uh, we've opened chapters with that coalition group in California and Pennsylvania. So myself and the coalition founder, one other person, we're the only three people that are in common to all three chapters. We, uh, we passed the law in Pennsylvania, which gives automatic expungement of record to anyone that's been arrested that ultimately won their case. Uh, so we did that. Um, I've, won a, I've won a lot of awards. Uh, I'm certified as, as an instructor in police academies in New Jersey, where twice a year they bring me in to do the uh, co-teach the morals and ethics class. Uh, I've been an adjunct professor twice teaching a wrongful conviction college class at Rockland Community College over several um, over several uh, uh, semesters. Uh, I'm recognized as an expert and an advocate based on my body of work. And so um, I sometimes uh, I'm invited in to speak in front of groups of judges. They ask me to address one wrongful conviction issue or another. Uh, I've met with groups of prosecutors and, and I've also done a ton of presentations in, in front of defense attorneys, just sharing new tactics that things that they can do to try to more effectively represent you know, their clients who are or actually innocent because it's different representing somebody that way as opposed to you're just providing a zealous defense and you're going to rely on reasonable doubt, but maybe your client actually did it. That's a totally different scenario. So what was happening is people were using the same tactics in both genres of cases and it, you know, it wasn't working out uh, that well. So I regularly meet with elected officials. Um, I, I've testified at a number of um, legislative hearings. Uh, I, I do sit on the uh, Global Advisory Board for Restorative Justice International, uh, where I advise them about um, wrongful conviction issues and criminal justice issues. So I kind of wear two hats there. So firstly, I just lay an issue out without regard to my opinion, because they're an international organization and they try to decide what position they're going to take. So I lay things out without my opinion, and then I give my opinion after that as to which way I think they should go and why. Uh, as as a you know, and I've also spoken quite a bit about the application of restorative justice and, and to the crossover between that and wrongful conviction. Uh, as an advocate, as an individual advocate, not not with the nonprofits, but just as an individual. Uh, so my, my endorsement's been given in like 10 different political races on behalf of candidates that are running on an anti-wrongful conviction, criminal justice reform agenda. Uh, so I've done that. Uh, there's a documentary short out about me on uh, Amazon Prime, which is called Conviction, which focuses on my advocacy work in my life uh, post-exoneration. So that's um, been selected by 11 different film festivals. It's won three awards. So it's I've amazing. done uh, It's amazing. Can yeah, I just interrupt right things. now and tell you it's I'm amazing. Say I'm not because I'm not I'm not my, my head is the right size and my feet <laughs> are on the floor uh, and I'm not. <laughs> Really in a tooting my own horn, so it's a little bit awkward to say all these things. No, but, no, don't but, stop. All right, yeah. So all those things, and you know, I've won maybe like ten different awards. I mean, you know, it's 
but it's good because I, what I like is that I'm recognized as an advocate and my motivation is what happened to me, but I'm much more than just, you know, what, what happened to me. And, you know, I judge myself and hold myself to the same standards as anyone else in my position that had not been wrongfully in, in, in prison. So, you know, I don't, my views aren't colored only by what happened to me, but also my studies at John Jay and a lot of informal learning that I've done and you know, working on cases and everything. So I kind of bring that unique perspective to things. So do you mind if I ask, are you married? Do you have a family? I don't mind you asking. Uh, I'm not married. Um, I'm not married. I don't, I don't have a, a, a family. I mean, uh, the, I think just the stigma has worked against me a little bit. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but then, um, you know, when you, you ever heard the expression before when somebody um, says, this one's a keeper. Yeah. Uh-huh. You've heard that, yeah, right? Yes. Well, uh-huh. you, but in order to be able to say that, uh-huh. right, you have to have been around the block a little bit. You have to have a comparative point. You're right. But I don't have that. I don't have that comparative point. So I that's that. a challenge. But there was just there was just another important point I'd just like to quickly make is that one of the things I've been able to do as an advocate is important for people to understand is that you know, the fight against wrongful conviction and justice reform in general, it, it's about justice and accuracy. It's not anti-police or anti-prosecutor. Uh, it's only against the rogue people in those professions, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and I've been able to position the issue that way. And, you know, that's why I'm welcomed into those other circles. Uh-huh. And just, you know, I, I serve on the uh, Peace Guild Police Task Force Reform Group, uh-huh. you know, and I, and I did serve for about a month on the transition team to the incoming Westchester District Attorney. So they selected me and a few other people just to draft memos and guidelines for her new conviction integrity unit that she's going to that she's going to form. So I have not buy in and presenting the issue um, that way. I think the answer is you have a huge family. (laughs) You have a you are surrounded by a huge, enormous family. So, yes. I want to say this, Recharge Beyond the Bars Reentry Game is a card game you co-own. Can you tell the listeners a bit more about it and why you feel it can make a big impact in someone's life? Absolutely. Yeah, so my my, my co-owner is Leslie Robinson, a a therapist who created the game. Uh And Recharge um, helps formerly incarcerated people to reintegrate back into society by by posing icebreaker-type questions, which are designed to facilitate communication between them, family members, old friends, new friends, each other. Uh, and, and so, um, you know, I, I play the game quite a bit myself oh. and, and I always feel more connected and I understand where people are coming from. See, normally there's an awkwardness, uh-huh. like somebody formerly incarcerated, you know, they are aware of that whoever they're speaking to has not been through a similar experience. So they're probably not going to be able to understand. Um, and then other people, they're not sure what to say, what not to say. Do I ask this? Do I not ask? So the, so the game, the icebreaker questions step in the middle and remove the awkwardness from it. And people share things that they normally uh, wouldn't share. And I, I've always get up from sessions like that. And uh, I feel I feel like I know the people that I've played the game with, um, you know, more, uh, more often. And it actually oh. works best oh, that's when wonderful. no one is even thinking about asking the next question because we, we're still like dialoguing and discussing off of the original uh, question. So that's my way of trying to, you know, give back to, you know, formerly incarcerated people, regardless of guilt, innocence. Oh, that's wonderful. 
Well, earlier I told you that there are two things I do with every podcast, and one is the drink of the day, which we've done, and the other thing is I do a game of the day. And so, oh, wow. I wonder what the game of the day will be today. <laughs> exactly. So I'm just wondering if it's all right with you, I'm going to ask yes. you some of the questions from your game. Absolutely. Okay, great. Okay, so number one, what color best describes your experience during incarceration and why? I would say um, black because it was uh, dark. It was a lot of, it was a lot of darkness. It was um, at, at times it, it felt like there was little hope. So I would say that that or that or, or maybe, maybe a better color would be to say gray uh-huh. because while it is a dark color, there was there was some light, some some light that got through there. And that was, you know, that would have been my hope in looking at these different appeals and writing letters and mm-hmm. going the parole board with those things just mm-hmm. contained some of my hope while it overall was kind of like a dark and murky place. Wonderful. Wonderful. Number two, what are you proudest of about how you handled being incarcerated? The fact that I used my time positively to better myself. I didn't waste any time. I oh, learned a lot. I love that. I love that answer. Number three, how did your family, loved ones, make you feel like you belonged after incarceration? Well, they would invite me to come to their house and they would, you know, ask me how I was doing and what was the latest and greatest things. And, mm. you know, they would say affirming things and, mm. you know, encourage me to keep going, doing the advocacy work. That's wonderful. Number four, how would someone who knows you well say you have changed? I think that they would say that I'm a lot more mature, that I'm, that I'm goal, that I'm goal focused. And that I, and I think the biggest thing of all would be, they would say that, you know, I have a purpose in life now. I mean, my, my purpose in life is to fight wrongful conviction and work for criminal justice reform. So, and I didn't have that. And I think that having that mission, that purpose in life, you know, that, that um, I have like a sense of inner peace uh, oh. as, as, a, as, a, as a result of, of, of that. And, you know, the, that's actually how I'm able to not be angry. I mean, I take that energy that I feel and I channel it into the, uh, I channel it into the advocacy work. Wow. And, you know, I, I find it to be very, um, it's healing and it's it's uh, and it's cathartic as well. Wow, that is a beautiful answer because there are a lot of people in this life who have not been through what you've been through and cannot say they have inner peace. Number five, how did your thinking change due to being incarcerated? Well, I learned the value of being determined, uh-huh. of having of having a plan, having you know having a goal first and having a plan. Remember that the plan is only the route to get there; it's not the actual goal itself. So you got to be flexible. And, and uh, if you want it, go for it. Go all out uh, for that. And, I, I'm, and I, I, I'm a dream chaser, so I'm willing to fall in the course of doing that. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll gamble on being great and end up with nothing. I'd rather to do that than, than to just be mediocre. Oh, I love and that. there's no reasons why you can't do something. There's only reasons why it might be harder, why you might have to work more. But, but I also tell myself in that, you know, when I, when I start to weaken and I think I can't make it, I just say to myself, you know what? Maybe this is the key moment right here, right now, uh, where if I would have just kept going, I would have like a breakthrough. So, you know what? I'm going to keep going. I'm going to see what happens on the other side. So, so that, that's, uh, so all those things are, all those things are part of it. And I, I really do believe never, never give up. That is beautiful. Maybe this is the key moment. 
Yeah, you're you're just amazing. If you just kept going. If you just kept going, you might have had that that breakthrough. And I think if you leave it all out on the field and you do all of that, I, I believe that the right door will open for you at the right time. Wow, you're amazing. Number six. What have you learned to appreciate that you didn't appreciate before? The small things, without a doubt. So I like feeling the fresh air on my face. I like feeling the sun, uh, the freedom of freedom of movement. I love just the, the opportunities that just exist by, by being free. I mean, whatever you want to do, you just go out and get the education and go and, go and do it. I love those things. Wow. Well, you know what? I have loved this time together, Jeff. You have made my day, week, month, and year. Thank you so much. Uh, sadly, that brings us to the end of this episode. And what an incredible game you co-own. And first and foremost, can you tell all of the listeners where to purchase it? Yeah, just go to the website. It's called Recharge the Game. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you recharge the game.com. Uh, if people can go to my website as as well. Obviously, there's, there's a part of it there. Uh, and it can also find out about my organization there. That website is um, www.deskovic.org. You can email me through there. I am on social media. So I have a Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn account. I have a public figure page on my uh, Facebook account. I'm at like the 5,000 limit. But if you, follow, if you hit the like button on the public figure page, you can keep up with me there. Whatever I post on one page, I automatically share it to another so you can keep up with the advocacy work that I'm, you know, that I'm doing in upcoming speaking events and uh, interviews. Oh, that's so wonderful because I always ask my guests to share their social media outlets because I want everyone to be able to reach out to you and keep up with you. So thank you so much for sharing all of that. And I also want my listeners to know that they can go to I've Got a Secret with Robin McGraw.com and we'll have all of your social media outlets on that page as well. So listeners, please, if you want to find out more about Jeff and his foundation. Go there and and just learn everything you can. This has just been wonderful. And also Secret Squad, I am dying to hear your thoughts about today's episode. Leave a comment on my latest Instagram post and let me know. You can find me at Robin underscore McGraw and visit I've Got a Secret with RobinMcGraw.com for more information and extras. I'll see you next week. Bye-bye.